I, I think that it's 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 going to be a tough as as the prime minister said it's going to be a very difficult few months ahead and it could well be another difficult few years ahead uh, for Sri Lanka. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Leo Kamer and I am joined by my co-host Nicole Rivas. Extreme inflation, fuel shortages, protests on such a scale that they removed a prime minister from office. These events and more have developed as a significant threat to Sri Lanka's political and economic stability. In this episode, we will explore the causes of this crisis like economic mismanagement, the story behind the Rajapaksa political dynasty, which held influence over the country for over a decade, and how this crisis impacts the people of Sri Lanka. In order to explain the crisis in Sri Lanka, Joining us today on the podcast is Michael Kugelman. Michael Kugelman is the Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. He's a leading specialist on Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan, and their relations with the United States. The editor or co-editor of 11 books, he has written for the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, and other publications, covering topics ranging from U.S. policy in Afghanistan to terrorism, to water, energy, and food security in the region. Michael, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. Mm -hmm. So we'll get started. Throughout the month of May, Sri Lanka has seen an explosion of protests, some of them violent, defaults on debts, and the resignation of a previously popular prime minister. Can you explain to our listeners what is happening? Well, you know, I would argue that what has played out in Sri Lanka over the last uh, few months um, is really a consequence of uh, a number of developments that have played out in the country since the end of Sri Lanka's uh, terrible nearly 30-year civil war, which ended in, in 2009. Uh, I would argue that there was um, a long legacy of economic management by the Rajapaksa family, and specifically um, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who had been um, president some years ago, and others as well, who had made a series of mistakes with economic policymaking, which essentially rendered the economy in Sri Lanka extremely vulnerable. And that um, then when you had a series of external shocks, such as the pandemic, which really hit the Sri Lankan economy hard because it's so dependent on tourism, and then more recently, when you had these surging global oil prices um, because of the, the war in Ukraine, sort of like the last straw, and it caused these really serious, serious economic strains um, for the country. And people reacted uh, on the streets with protests because they were simply fed up of with many years of, of mismanagement and with the perception that the government simply didn't care. And instead of trying to address these longstanding economic problems had instead taken a, a hard line and cracked down. Um, and then finally, when it, what ended up happening, leading to which, what led to the violence, is that you had some, I guess you could describe them as goons, um, violent partisans of Mahinda Rajapaksa, who essentially were uh, put out on the streets and attacked the anti-government protesters. And then everything turned violent. You had the anti-government protesters uh, respond with violence as well. So it's just a real uh, long, sad story that uh, culminated in some of these very tragic uh, developments of recent weeks and recent days. And and what form 
uh, did did the economic mismanagement uh, that that you took that that you mentioned take? Um, I'm just curious, like mm-hmm. what what exactly was the economic mismanagement? Yeah, so I guess I have to go back to 2009, which is when the civil war ended, and it was a period of of great hope, understandably, in Sri Lanka because the country was ready to move on, and so the government at the time, which was led by by Mahinda Rajapaksa, who until recently was the was the prime minister at the time in 2009, he was the president. So he did what most governments would do in an effort to rebuild after many years of war, and that is to uh, focus on uh, development projects, mainly those focused on infrastructure. He was literally trying to rebuild the country. It made perfect sense. The problem is that this entailed. Um, uh, getting a, seeking and, and securing many loans uh, from outside the country and particularly from China. And we hear so often now about how China has expanded its presence in Sri Lanka through infrastructure developments. A lot of it went back to 2009. But the problem is that these, uh, these, these loans for this infrastructure development uh, generated tremendous levels of debt for the Sri Lankan economy. Uh, and so that was really the, the first problem that the government, in its understandable zeal to rebuild the country, uh, focused so much on bringing in these loans that it didn't really have a strategy for managing them and pay them off. And so at one point it tried to use uh, foreign exchange earnings to pay off these soaring loans, but it didn't work. And, and debt uh, increased or commercial debt uh, increased from less than 10% in 2006 to nearly 60% in 2019. Then in 2019, there was a second major, major um, mistake. And that is when the president, uh, Godabaya Rajapaksa, who at that point had just been elected, he made a decision to cut taxes, um, which obviously was a was was meant to cater to to political considerations, um, and so this meant that the government uh, suddenly had a lot less revenue uh, at a very key moment because the pandemic hit soon after that decision was made, uh, and then then the pandemic started to do a number on the tourism industry. Um, again, tourism is a key component of the Sri Lankan economy. So I think the the figures the the country the tourism industry's contribution to GDP fell from uh, almost six percent in 2018 to less than one percent in 2020. But then the government, in, in, you know, an effort to keep the economy going, kept spending heavily. That led to a currency depreciation. And then finally, just last year in 2021, uh, the government banned a certain type of fertilizer, banned chemical fertilizer. Now, again, sounds good, right? I mean, clearly it was meant to to spark more organic farming and help the environment and so on. But unfortunately, what that ended up doing was it, it uh, reduced agricultural yields in a big way just because there was suddenly a big fertilizer shortage. Farmers couldn't get alternatives quickly enough. So you had major agricultural um, uh, uh, product shortages that led to rising food costs. So... You, you understand now that those mistakes from the past made the economy so vulnerable that it didn't take much to have to create these conditions that led to such shocks and crashes in the economy um, with what's happened just in more recent weeks with these surging uh, global oil prices. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, so we have this uh, we have this lead up to to the sort of crisis that's going on now um what what is the the state of the of affairs at this moment 
on as of recording on May 24th. Right. And I guess we have to be careful because things happen so quickly. Uh, so um, one of the, the biggest recent developments is that the prime minister, Mahinda Rajapaksa, uh, he resigned, uh, and he, he may well have been fired by his brother, uh, President uh, Rajapaksa. And the idea was to clear the way for a new type of, a new interim government, uh, pardon me, a new government still led by Godabaya uh, Rajapaksa. And there's a new prime minister uh, who was appointed in recent weeks, uh, someone who had been um, who had held office several times in the past, five times he's been a prime minister, uh, Raniel Wickerman Singh. And the good news is that he has indicated a strong desire to push forward discussions with the IMF to try to get a new IMF package. That seems to be the consensus for what has to happen in Sri Lanka to try to rein in the economic stress, at least in the immediate term, is to get a new IMF package. Um, but the problem is that the core demand of most of the anti-government protesters in Sri Lanka from the start has been for all of the Rajapaksas to go, including the president, uh, who's still there. Uh, you've had in, in recent weeks most of the cabinet members of the government, including some other members of the Rajapaksa family that have resigned. And of course, the prime minister, Prime Minister Rajapaksa resigned recently, but the president is still there. So that suggests to me that the protests are not going to stop. Um, and so, and they haven't. I mean, there continue to be protests across the country. Fortunately, we have not seen the levels of violence in recent days that we had seen uh, some weeks back. But the, the protesters continue to be aggrieved, the economic situation continues to get worse, and their core demand uh, has not been met. And the president has, has given no indication that he is going to step down anytime soon, if, if at all. Right. And you mentioned that until recently, um, Mohanda Rajapaska was the prime minister, and um, his brother is now president. Could you give us a little bit of a background on who the Rajapaksa Rajapaksas are, and how and why this family is so powerful. Yeah, so I think that the, the Rajapaksa family is like, uh, it sort of reflects a reality that we see in many um, cases of South Asian politics in the region, and that is these very uh, omnipresent political dynasties. Um, you see this uh, in, in, in uh, Pakistan with the Bhutto family and the Sharif family. You see it in India with the, the Gandhi family. And, you know, in the case of Sri Lanka, um, this is just a group of, it's just a, it's just a family that has been around a very long time with a level, uh, with an involvement in politics that uh, goes back many, many years. And, you know, it should be said that unlike some other cases of political dynasties and other areas of the region, you know, this is a family that had ensured, uh, pardon me, had been, had enjoyed a considerable degree of popularity for quite a long time. I think that's important to point out that, uh, you know, Mahinda Rajapaksa, and by extension, the, the family on the whole, um, were, were viewed by a significant contingent of the population as something closely approximating heroes because the Civil War ended in 2009 and it was a Rajapaksa at the helm when that happened. Now, the final you know, the final military offensive that led to the end of the war, it, it was terrible, terribly brutal. 
with incredible levels of human rights violations. But still, you know, the, the war did end. This horrible war that had stretched for nearly 30 years ended. And so that was something that um, redounded to the political benefit of the Rajapaksa family. It's only in more recent years when the economic mismanagement set in uh, and then the, the, the Rajapaksa's increasingly heavy-handed tactics used against dissent, only then did the, the, did the popularity disappear. Um, so, you know, like most political dynasties, it was able to enjoy the, the benefits of patronage and being able to count on particular su- types of support. And even now, uh, you know, it would be wrong to say that the Rajapaksa dynasty is going to go away. I mean, the very fact that you had Mahinda Rajapaksa in a position to send out droves of, of goons to target anti-government protesters you know, that, that suggests something. It's sort of, sort of depressing in a way. So again, this is a, this is a political family that's been around for a long time. Uh, it may be weakened, or it certainly has been weakened given what's, what's happened, but it certainly is not going to disappear from the scene politically anytime soon. And certainly in a literal sense, if we assume that President Rajapaksa will continue to, uh, to hold power. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about Prime Minister Renil Wickremesinghe um, and how the public perceives him. What's his response to the crisis? Right. So, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize uh, here, but I think generally speaking, um, large segments of the of the populace uh, do not see him as the ideal next prime minister, uh, just because he's you know, he's someone that um, is perceived, even though he had been serving in the opposition, someone is perceived as being close to, or friendly with the Rajapaksa uh, family. So that's the first uh, concern right there. And I think that him having been such a big part of the political elite for so long, again, this is someone that's that served as prime minister multiple times in the past. I think that's perceived as problematic for many that want to see truly fresh blood and something really different. But I think in in um, credit to the new prime minister for coming out uh, very early on in his, in his in the first few days after he had taken office, uh, he gave a speech to the nation in which he was he really leveled with with the public. He, he, he admitted that times are really tough and they're going to get even worse. Uh, he didn't try to make excuses for how bad things were. He said things, you know, we're going to have some of the worst few months we've ever had in our history. Those are his exact words, more or less. That's pretty significant. And he also laid out something closely approximating an economic recovery strategy. It did, it did um, lack a lot um, of detail, but it's been upfront about the need to go to the IMF and get a... Um, get a new agreement from the IMF. He has acknowledged that that will likely make things even worse for Sri Lankans in the immediate term, because that will entail uh, austerity measures that the IMF always requires when it provides these bailout packages to economies in need. So that was encouraging that he was upfront. He wasn't making excuses. He wasn't being defensive. But you know, I think the proof is in the, the pudding, so to speak. We will, we will see. But the noises he's made have been encouraging. But um, my sense is that many in, in Sri Lanka just think of him as part of the same broader cast of characters that is, if not directly, indirectly responsible for uh, producing and supporting the type of policies on the economic side that have led to Sri Lanka being where it is today. And so on that note of how the public is experiencing these political and economic 
uh, affairs. Um, what what sort of hardships are the people facing as a result of the national economic troubles, and um, what ways have they protested these circumstances? Well, I mean, I think that the biggest, um, most vivid illustration of economic hardship are the soaring food and fuel costs, uh, as well as the increasingly precious um, supplies of food and fuel. Uh, it's obviously, um, that's that's the major concern right now. And people are literally, uh, you know, not able to secure enough food and enough fuel. And so this means that, you know, on the one hand, those that depend on, on fuel um, for their businesses, you know, like food sellers um, in city streets, they're unable to work because they don't have cooking oil. Um, you know, public transport is in many cases not uh, not something you can depend on because the um, uh, because there's not enough uh, transport fuels to go around. And you know, you've had people. One of the most heartbreaking images is large groups of people, um, including rickshaw drivers, motorized rickshaw drivers, who have stood in long, long lines at gas stations, hoping to get just a little bit of fuel to be able to power their their rickshaws, which of course are the means of their very modest livelihoods, but they they've waited in in vain. Um, and you know, at one point in recent days, the government came out and said it's not worth standing in line because you're not going to get any fuel. There's none left. Um, you know, at one at one point in recent days, we were hearing the government say that there's only enough fuel to last for another day, and we keep hearing messages like that. So keeping in mind that these folks are not experiencing economic hardship for the first time. Uh, obviously, Sri Lanka's economic crisis has been a major news story over the last few weeks because it's been so bad. But it's really been you know, for well more than a decade, um, and especially since 2019, when you've had uh, prolonged levels of, of economic uh, stress and these, these soaring food and fuel costs have just made things worse. So um, that's what I think makes this even more difficult to bear for people here, uh, or people in Sri Lanka that, you know, have seen things got, get so much worse. And, you know, this gets to this broader story of, of Sri Lanka. It's, it's sort of this repeated case of, 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 of hardship and heartbreak where, you know, again, there was this terrible civil war that finally ended some years ago. But then after that, uh, you started to have economic problems creep in. Uh, there was a terrible terrorist attack uh, several years ago. Uh, in Sri Lanka, which is very unusual for this to happen. Violence of any sort on a broader level has been relatively rare since the Civil War. That was very traumatic for the country. And then you had the pandemic, which hit the country real hard because of the, the, the tourism industry. So it's been one thing after the other, and it really is uh, very tragic to see how it's all played out. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned that that it was recently with the protests that Sri Lanka has sort of been in the headlines recently. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about the international response to the crisis that Sri Lanka has been in um, from countries or inter international organizations. And I know you mentioned um, the IMF, which I'll ask about um, in a bit, but um, just in general, what's the international response like? So, you know, despite everything going on in the world uh, with the Ukraine crisis and, and so many other uh, crises, and despite all this talk about you know, donor fatigue and all of that, uh, I've been struck that there has been a pretty large response from, from the international uh, community. Um, you know, just in recent days, 
the U.S. government has signaled its desire to provide some type of assistance to, to Sri Lanka. The USAID administrator had something to say about that. Um, and uh, we've seen a significant level of um, interest from the likes of China and India to provide support to Sri Lanka. Now, this gets to a sort of a broader issue. I've highlighted three countries, the U.S., India, and China. Um, Sri Lanka is viewed as a pretty, it's, it's a country viewed with significant levels of strategic significance. Um, in the region in South Asia, um, I think that it sort of fits into this broader story of great power rivalry. Um, China, of course, has developed a bigger presence in Sri Lanka in recent years uh, through its infrastructure investments. India has historically had some close relations with Sri Lanka, and it, of course, has, has been trying to counter uh, China's growing footprint there. And in the United States, which of course is keen to counter Chinese power influence in the broader region, I think sees Sri Lanka as a key case to demonstrate that it is capable of countering China. So I wouldn't argue necessarily that, that the US or India for that matter, or China are wanting to provide assistance just out of the sake of charity. And that's not how it works, right? This is international relations. Everything is driven by, by interests. And it's quite notable that as Sri Lanka's economic crisis has worsened in recent weeks, both China and India had put themselves out there as potential sources of support. Uh, there was an agreement, a line of credit agreement that Sri Lanka concluded with India some time ago. And then very soon after that, you had a, uh, I believe it was the Chinese ambassador in Sri Lanka who had indicated uh, China's potential interest in providing some form of new assistance to the country. Um, but it, it's just, and it's interesting because Sri Lanka, like most countries in South Asia that find themselves caught up in this increasing strategic rivalry between China and India, they don't want to be caught in the middle of that. They want to have good relations with both China and India. But in this case, I think Sri Lanka may benefit from this China-India rivalry in the sense that it means there's a greater chance that you're going to have two key economic players, China and India, both trying to do what they can to support, to bring financial assistance to Sri Lanka uh, in order to, to counter the other. But obviously that benefits Sri Lanka um, in, this, in this case. You know, going back to uh, a bit earlier this year, China and Sri Lanka became embroiled in this spat when Sri Lanka concluded that a fertilizer shipment from China to Sri Lanka was tainted and it wasn't usable. Keeping in mind the fertilizer shortages I mentioned before, um, right after that spat went public, India very soon announced that it was sending in a new shipment of fertilizer supplies uh, to, to Sri Lanka. So I think that sort of highlights the, the, the depth of this rivalry, the strategic rivalry between India and China and how it plays out in Sri Lanka and how, given how bad things are economically in Sri Lanka, it can, it can actually benefit from that, at least in the near term. Right. And, and we've mentioned the, the IMF loan um, a couple times already. Um, and I was wondering how successful you think this loan or similar programs will be. Well, I mean, I think the first step is whether the, the negotiations are successful, of course. And, you know, as I had said, the, the new prime minister in Sri Lanka has clearly made that a priority. And I think there are some questions as to whether the IMF would be willing to have meaningful negotiations with Sri Lanka at a moment when there's still so much political tumult with these anti-government protests and so on. But if, if the negotiations are successful, resulting in some type of new package, um, I think that it all depends on whether the government is willing to 
uphold any uh, obligations that it would have to the IMF if it were to get a deal. As I had said before, it would need to uh, engage in significant levels of austerity in order to generate more revenue within the within the Sri Lankan government. And so, you know, this means you know no free passes, no free handouts to the to the population. Uh, you know, subsidies and fuel and food would be highly discouraged, if not um, f- forbidden, by the IMF uh, under any type of new arrangement. And obviously, that's that's really tough for the government because you know you're looking at a at a government that's very uncertain, that's very volatile, very vulnerable. I mean, and um, the last thing you would want to do in the immediate term one would think is to put the public through even more hardship. But, um, you know, there, there's no reason to think that the deal won't be done if the IMF feels comfortable negotiating with this government at a moment when it's so, uh, incredibly vulnerable. And we've talked about how this crisis has sort of affected neighboring countries in terms of, um, strategic power rivalries. Um, but, in terms of this instability affecting uh, maybe the region as a whole um, and how you see this crisis uh, or maybe how this crisis might be part of a greater global trend, um, could you talk about um, how you see this fitting in? Sure. I mean, I do think that we are experiencing uh, a an era of significant global significant global economic strain right and certainly a lot of this can be attributable to exogenous factors uh, the pandemic and you know the impact that that has had on supply chain shortages and then more recently the Ukraine crisis and the impact that that has had on oil prices and and of course also um, food supplies and food costs so we're seeing significant levels of inflation, and uh, and and debts and things like that in many countries around the world, including in the United States, of course, we're dealing with significant levels of inflation here uh, right now as well. I don't necessarily. I mean, I think that the the current situation in Sri Lanka. I, I've already sort of described how it plays into the the geopolitical um, rivalries of of the region, but. I think that you know Sri Lanka. It does have important trade relations with many countries uh, in the region and beyond, and especially India, for that matter. And so, I think that this could be you know this could be concerning in that regard. Um, you know, also, you're looking at countries that are keen to invest in Sri Lanka. Certainly, China. Um, you know, China is not. It, it's willing to take risks in its in its infrastructure investments. I mean, it continues to invest and uh, and and provide infrastructure assistance to to Pakistan uh, at a moment when Chinese nationals have actually been hit in several terrorist attacks in that country in recent uh, in recent months. So it's not going to be scared off by a bit of um, instability. But you know, you're looking at a, a a particularly serious and sustained level of political instability in Sri Lanka. And I think that that could give pause to the likes of China um, in that sense. But I think broadly just the, for Sri Lanka, it's, it obviously wants to be um, focusing on its trade relationships, on investment opportunities. But with all this political turmoil, uh, I think that that's uh, maybe, may not be possible um, to be focusing on that so much just because there's going to be a lot of hesitation from outside financiers and investors about coming into Sri Lanka and uh, and looking into deals at this point. Uh, perhaps this question 
maybe uh, difficult to answer. Um, but what may Sri Lanka's future look like? Could it pull itself out of this economic malaise, perhaps with the with the help of an IMF loan, were it to be negotiated, or will the country struggle for years to come? Yeah, indeed, it is a tough question to answer. I think in the immediate term, the immediate term future certainly will hedge on whether Sri Lanka gets that IMF loan. That's the first step. If it does, and if the government does what it has to do uh, in terms of the austerity measures that go with it, um, it certainly that could put the country on a uh, on a better path uh, economically, but uh, not necessarily politically. And that sort of gets to the other issue. I think the future of the president, President, president Rajapaksa, what happens to him? Does he eventually step down or does he keep, try to keep pushing through? Uh, I think that could sort of have an impact on the political side. And obviously the, the economic and the political crises are linked, right? Because it's hard, I think, for the country or for the government to really... Uh, focus laser-like on the economic crisis and on economic recovery so long as politically there's instability and volatility and vulnerability. Um, and yet, you know, the, the political situation will endure as well. Um, the political crisis will endure as well so long as the economic crisis endures. So it's sort of a chicken or egg situation. Hard to say. Um, my sense is that um, if the IMF negotiations um, play out, if there's a deal, uh, I think that could help matters in the immediate term, but I, I just keep thinking about the fact that so many of the protesters, the anti-government protesters, they want the president to go. So I think that's a key signpost to be to be looking for. I mean, what what does what does Rajapaksa do? What does Gotabaya Rajapaksa do? That I think will be a key indicator of how things play out, at least in the immediate uh, term. And then beyond that looking at how the world responds, not just in terms of the IMF deal, but, you know, will there be other uh, rescue packages from the countries that I mentioned, uh, as well as other countries, such as the EU, for example? I mean, there are plenty of, there are plenty of, of entities out there that potentially would have interest in providing support um, to financial support to Sri Lanka. That'll be really important in the immediate term. But you know, I think given that it was really several decades of economic management, uh, or pardon me, um, more, well more than a decade of economic uh, mismanagement, you can't recover from that in a heartbeat. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of difficult policies, in some cases those that could be uh, politically damaging, uh, so to speak. But um, I, I think that it's, it's, it's going to be a tough, as, as the Prime Minister said, it's going to be a very difficult few months ahead and it could well be another difficult few years ahead uh, for Sri Lanka. All right. Well, uh, well, th those are um, all we have to, to ask you. So uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast, Michael. Thank you. Great discussion. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.